Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome back to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and get ready, get your science hats on, I don't know, your science skates, your, your boots, whatever it is you, um, you like to wear when you listen to science that is, because we have half an hour of science on the radio for you, ready to go. And of course, with me are... Chris and Stu. Stu, what do you have in store for us today? And what article of clothing do you wear when you science? I wear my science boots, obviously. (laughs) Science boots, great. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, this week I I was having a discussion over the last week uh, with some people about various formats of listening to music and what was was better. And I'm using little air quotes there because obviously what, what is better is whatever makes you feel better, really, when it comes down to to music. It's very Uh, subjective. But but we did get into the format side of things, and I'm a bit of a format accumulator. Some would say hoarder, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) I I prefer my terminology. And I've got a lot of of records and stuff around the place, and one one thing I don't have is any quadraphonic records. Oh, okay. We got onto this subject of quadraphonic records. Uh, Okay, for the uninitiated here, what is a quadraphonic record? Okay, so most of the music we hear is is stereo music. Obviously not on our show because we go out as a mono signal, which I'll, I'll explain this later. But quadraphonic means you're getting music from four directions instead of two, mm. which is what stereo mm-hmm. usually is. Yeah, But we only have two ears, Stu. <laughs> yeah. This this is this is the question I was I was seeking to answer, Chris. Mm. Is what benefit is there to having more than two speakers when we only have the two possible ears for them to go into? Well, Stu, regardless of the answer, I will be all ears for that story. And Chris, how about you? First things first, what article of clothing do you like to wear when you science? Um, I have a a few different articles of clothing. I have a science apron because my science gets quite messy. (laughs) You're a physicist. That's just not true. Oh yeah. I was thinking about the far side cartoons though, where they're standing in front of a blackboard wearing their lab coats and, (laughs) you know, it's like, that's what people think physicists do. (laughs) This is true. Yeah. You might recall, Claire, after, uh, after last week's show, you and I had a bit of a chat and I told you about how things are going at our house with the, with the babies and how we seem to have constantly had a cold in our house of some description Mm. the last few months. And yeah, like everyone knows that babies are germ factories with immature immune systems. And so they're going to be vulnerable to viruses. This is kind of like one of those things that everyone seems to know, but it just seems like we as parents seem to be constantly snotty too. And I know just wondering why. And so I thought, look and see if there's any research on this topic. Yeah. Well, um, that was a question that I've been asking 
for years and, and, and people have actually been asking me and I'm like, yeah, I, I just don't get it. So I'm glad you have been digging into this, Chris. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure it's something that um, that'll affect a lot of people. I mean, whether you've got kids or not, whether you're living with kids, but maybe you've just got a cold. Is that right, Stu? Yeah. Colds are making a comeback in 2021. I seem to be exactly. pretty, pretty clear of them last year, but uh, mm-hmm. for some reason, contact with other humans... Uh, seems to spread colds. Who who could have guessed or predicted that would be the case? Just as well, we're still social distancing. Uh, well, I hope everyone out there is staying safe and those colds aren't too bad. Make sure you top up on your lemon and honey tea and on with the show. You might have figured out over the years that I'm something of a collector of redundant technologies. There are lots of shelves in my house stacked up with all kinds of defunct media and devices on which to play those media. I I still have a few VHS tapes and a player. I have DVDs. I have (laughs) Blu-rays and a whole bunch of... I don't have any mini discs, but I do have floppy discs. I have uh, irrelevant video game consoles and cartridges and discs to go in those irrelevant consoles. But I also have an awful lot of music in the house. So I have a bunch of music on my hard drive, which you know is in itself a pretty outdated way to uh, listen to music uh, from your computer. I also have a couple of shelves, and I mean shelving units, full of CDs. And I've also got a few more shelves full of vinyl records and even some Bakelite records. Oh, wow. So not not anything to play those on. I just keep them because I can say I have them, I guess. Now, the vinyl records are probably how I first started collecting music and physical media, though I had a few tapes. Obviously, tapes were a thing um, back when I was a kid. But most of what was on those tapes was recorded from other friends' records and also from the radio sitting there waiting for my song to come on and pressing record so I could hear my favourite song. (laughs) But I was talking to people about records recently and it got me thinking about a particular kind of vinyl and the the technology, the science of how vinyl records work is kind of harder for me to get my head around than digital music for some reason. Digital music seems pretty simple to me. You get the sound, you turn it into a, a binary string of ones and zeros, and you spit it back out the other end and it turns back into the music. That seems to be a lot more simple than how vinyl records are made, which is... No, 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 no. Vinyl records are way more simple. You're recording the actual waveform on the... on the... scratching it into the... into the plastic. Yeah, but how did someone figure that out? That's what really freaks me out. Anyway... It's like in a... like in a thousand years when they're finding, like digging up old technology, if any of this is still exists, you know, you'd be able to, like, put a vinyl record on something and it'll have the waveform, so they'll be able to read it and decipher it. Whereas a CD, they're going to go, how is this coded? We have no way to, to know how to read this. That is true, but even within the vinyl recording, and that, and that is how vinyl records work, there's a physical groove which has the waveforms and a needle reads that waveform off. Now, that in itself is, is pretty simple, I guess. You know, it comes back out. Mm. And originally... They came out through sort of like a horn sort of thing on the old phonograph, uh, and then electrical speakers would would uh, generate the sound that came out of the 
the the turntable or out of the record player. Um, and it, but it was all a single channel back in those days, and that is a simple idea. But then people started to go, well, hang on, you know, and it was actually someone sitting in a movie theatre who went, well, this actor's on one side of the screen, but it sounds like his voice coming from the other side because the speaker is a fixed thing and there's no way to move the sound around because there's only one channel of sound. And this guy sort of was thinking, well, maybe we could make stereo sound. And actually stereo was originally sort of a brand name of of this system of of getting two channels out of the sound, so two sound sources coming from two uh, different speakers. And in the 1930s, that was developed and became really common in the movies, but records were still mono. So records just still had that one channel, and you could just have a mono record with one speaker's worth of sound coming at you at any time. Uh, And they stayed that way until basically the 1960s, especially for home use, and this is... I found this interesting. There was a whole lot of technology designed specifically to stop people listening to records at home because they wanted them to listen to the radio so they could get the advertising money. The basic idea of a stereo record is that the groove in the record has two sides to the groove. If you think of a groove, it's like a channel. It's got Mm. one side, it's got a left side and a right side. So you can actually put two different waveforms in the one groove on the record. And that's basically how stereo works. There's a little bit more to it than that. You need a special needle. You need a magnetic cartridge. It's got to measure uh, not just left and right movement of the needle, but up and down movement of the needle. So there's a whole lot of, I guess, formatting and, and coding, if you like, involved in figuring out how that works. But somehow all of these record manufacturers got together and made a standard system so that they could all use the same method and use the same sort of coding and playback and you could play anyone's record back on anyone's record player and that was great and in the 60s that uh, really took off so in a stereo system the two channels are divided into left and right speakers or very small speakers we would call headphones and you can stick them on or in your ears and hear this uh, stereo system which gives the illusion of multiple sound sources instead of the one we get in mono recordings like our show. And as I said, stereo recordings really took off in the 60s. Studios who put out records and electronics manufacturers pushed their products. There was, look around, there's all this uh, amazing advertising from the 60s about the benefits of stereo and how amazing stereo was. And people loved it. It was more realistic, they thought. But it's really down to how... The, the sounds are mixed in the studio. It's not that it's actually you're hearing what was in the studio. The, the, the studio sounds all get recorded. The mixer decides which channel they go in and they can make it sound the way they want. So you're sort of getting this artificially realistic sound from the stereo, I guess. Now, once everyone had a stereo system and was buying stereo records, how could anyone break into the audio market in the 1970s? Well... The obvious answer to to somebody was to make something twice as good as stereo. So if you've got two speakers in stereo, (laughs) you need four speakers and then that blow everyone's minds. And this was called quadraphonic sound. Hang on, but I don't understand. If you've only got if you've only got two grooves, how do you get four speakers worth of sound? Well, how many quadraphonic systems do you see on the market now, Claire? Uh, I mean, I haven't been into a brashes as they used to be called in Newcastle for a really long time. Um, 
by the same token, how many brushes have you seen in the last in the last little while? This is one of the things. People sort of went, well, I've got two ears, stereo sound, that seems pretty good. If you're wearing headphones, if you think about, you know, 1980s kind of era, people were getting Walkmans and stuff like that. They had their headphones on. Quadraphonics is using four sound sources to get a more realistic sound for the where, listener. Where do, you, where do you put the other two headphone things? Well, well that's like. exactly right. You can't listen to quadraphonic music or quadraphonic recordings through headphones. It just doesn't work. So this is for someone sitting in a room, and, and that's, I guess, a limitation of it. The idea of, of having multiple sound sources is is one that we're all probably very familiar with. If, if you've ever been to a cinema, we have surround sound in the cinema and you get sound from all different directions and that is a result of having speakers in all different places as well um but for for home listening uh we do actually have the ability in our hearing we have what we call binaural hearing but we can tell which direction a sound is coming from by the difference in time that it takes to hit one ear than the other ear and Mm. so you can kind of tell where it's from so if it is coming from a different source we go oh it sounds like it's coming from behind me or it sounds like it's coming from far in front of me to the right or whatever um but these quadraphonic records give that illusion of being more like real world soundscapes with sounds coming from all over the place but again this is mainly due to recording and engineering skill and the way the records are put together they're not actually recording real world sounds they're just being put together to to develop this soundscape now as you mentioned claire it's very difficult to play back four channels of sound from a single record groove and there were multiple competing incompatible formats so basically some companies had records that worked on one system other companies had their records coded in a different way and there was no real simple central agreement to make records that all work the same way. Therefore, you had to buy different systems to play different records from different companies. So basically, uh, we still have stereo sound, but quadraphonics kind of died off in the 70s when it started. Now, more recently, as I mentioned, there have been you know, 5.1 surround sound systems, which you can buy for your home, which is the you know f- five little speakers and a subwoofer, which... Uh, gives this bass level sound and that's another thing which which has been experimented with you can you can get better quality of sound by having different kinds and different sizes of speakers to focus on different frequencies and you get a more realistic sound from those still i like the idea that um quadraphonics how can we beat quadraphonics five speakers (laughs) yeah yeah, they, they just upped, upped the game again. You would think also that the advent of CDs would have made the problems of quadraphonics sort of fade away and you could put lots more data that could be interpreted by a CD player in, in different ways into a CD. But they, you know, vinyl died out as CDs came in and quadraphonics kind of disappeared into the ether. But as far as getting realistic sound, people have looked into this problem there's a an audio scientist in southern california has come up with what he thinks is the perfect surround system that gives you an actual realistic sound and he uses multiple speakers in his lab his name's uh chris kiriakakis he's analyzed human hearing patterns using what he calls psychoacoustics and discovered the best arrangement of speakers to deliver a realistic sound and he uses an orchestra to you know to get that full rich complete sort of 
frequency range of everything he can possibly get. Uh, he's come down to 11 speakers, and his 11 speaker, it's, it's an 11.2 surround sound system, uh, placed at carefully calculated positions in the room around the listener and tuned to particular frequencies at particular angles and positions of the speakers. He claims this is the most realistic sound possible from a speaker system, but it's probably not going to catch on for the average home listener. Certainly can't figure out how the headphones would work either. So, But a receiver for this kind of system that can play back this kind of uh, 11.2 musical mix costs over... $2,500 just for the receiver. That's not including the speakers or anything else that goes into it. So as far as I'm concerned, I think I'll just wait until that's also obsolete before I buy one. get a lot of colds even in the age of like post pandemic kind of still you know social distancing all those kind of things kids seem to get a lot of colds i've seen some various numbers quoted about how many they get but um look it can be as many as eight to ten a year when for kids that are less than two years old that is a lot that, that's, that's that is a lot that's it's close to close to once a month that's a lot of colds Oh, and they, they take a while to shake them as well, as, you know, um, young children. Just to say the probably bleeding obvious here, but it's a lot when you can't blow your nose properly yet. Well, that's true. They can't, they're not capable of blowing their noses properly either. And that's, that is part it's of just the problem. Cruel. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it, yeah, it does build up. I mean, certainly in our house with our two um, twins, uh, two twins, uh, who are, what, eight months old at the moment, we've seen a lot of snot. Um, and yeah, as you said, they can't really blow their nose. So it doesn't help with sleeping either, mm. you know, because they're kind of lying on their backs generally and it's not sliding down their throats and they can't breathe properly. Yeah. Look, it's, it's not a lot of fun, but look, uh, I won't go into that too much. I mean, sleeping is perhaps a story for another day. If I ever find <laughs> out some good scientific answers on how to get babies to sleep. But look, yeah, and it is complicated. Like got worse for us. One of our babies got an ear infection as a result of their cold. So, um, babies being small, they have tiny eustachian tubes. Uh, you know what the eustachian tube is, don't you guys? Um, yes. Is that um, Flinders Street eustachian? It's very good. It's it's the little it's the little tubes in your ears that 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 help with balance. Is that right? Uh, it's 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 a tube that the it joins the middle ear, which is where the balance is done. It joins the middle ear to the back of the nose. Um, I think it's a theory that evolutionary has got something to do with gills. It came from that. But, um, wow. But, yeah, essentially we use it for, I guess, balancing out pressure. Like when you pop your ears, it's all to do with, um, you know, these eustachian tubes. And right. it's also for clearing out gunk from your ears. Where did you yeah. say they are anatomically, Chris? 
they're between they're run between the middle ear and the back of the nose, kind of the nasopharyngeal kind of space. Because they're smaller in babies, they can easily get blocked, which then leads to secretions building up in the middle ear, and then you get um, you get basically infections, you get pain, you get a fever. It's not fun for a little baby, as we found out. No. So, yeah, as I said, babies are vulnerable to getting colds. So at birth, they do get some antibodies from their mother, but then those wear off over time and their immune system has to build up its own defences. So, like, it makes sense from that they're going to catch a lot of colds, especially when, like our babies do, they go to, to childcare. So we, we've been, our babies have going to childcare one day a week for the last few months. And, yeah, that's obviously full of other babies who also have lots of colds. So this all makes a lot of logical sense, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. So far, so good. Question is, does this lead to parents getting sick as well? I think think you know the answer to that, Chris. Well, subjectively, I think I know the answer. But what does science say? This is the thing, you know. Is it, it, you know, what is the answer here? Totally. Would would you be getting sick anyway? And you're just a bit more tired, so you notice it more. Exactly. So, like, we're talking about how babies have immature immune systems. And so you think, oh, well, you know, adults actually have stronger experienced immune system so surely we're not as vulnerable to colds you think and yeah your immune system does create antibodies to all the infections that you encounter over your lifetime Uh, and so you will have more antibodies than a small baby but cold germs like rhinoviruses are constantly mutating so this is why you can catch a cold every year because they are different every year we're seeing at the moment, like with um, the COVID-19 vaccines, right? So there was obviously a lot of testing in their clinical trials to say, does it prevent symptoms or, yeah. you know, bad consequences of the disease? But they didn't have enough power, I guess, in those tests to work out whether it prevented infection, um, you know, passing on the virus. Yeah. And now there is real world data showing that it perhaps does prevent Um, infection and one of the reasons for that is because people who have had a vaccine have less viral load if they actually get the virus they have a less viral load so then yeah it kind of makes sense if you are sicker you're going to have more snot more kind of secretions more aerosols going out that's going to infect more people whereas if you're not showing symptoms then you're not going to be spreading the virus as much and so i guess when you have thinking about kids if they're getting sicker they're going to be spreading more um more germs more rapidly than the adults are but even so, as an adult, you do have some resistance. You should have more resistance than a small baby. I mean, mm. otherwise my whole argument about why they get so many colds falls down. Yeah. You know, if they're exactly the same as adults. Um, so, look, it's, it's a bit of a tricky question. But fortunately, I have found some research on this topic. I knew you would, Chris. <sighs> look, there was, um, there was a kind of a mixed bag of research, but I found a useful study, which was um, published in 2015. It was from Utah. And it's called the Better Identification of Germs Longitudinal Viral Epidemiology Study. I don't know if you know what's done in medical research these days. People try to find good acronyms. So oh, you get these awkward yeah. names. Now, no. this one is Big Love. <laughs> Actually, it's from Utah. So Big Love, I wonder. Wow. Oh, it's a Mormon that was a, thing. Remember the TV show? I don't know, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. I hadn't considered that. That's interesting. That's quite interesting. I need to find out more about this. Anyway, so what this study did, um, it's not a huge study. They got 26 households, and for about a year, they got them to keep diaries of their symptoms, but they also had nasal swabs, with um, which they used for PCR testing, another thing that we're familiar with now due to the, a year of COVID-19. So what they found was that families without children spent about... 
There are about four weeks of the year that they had at least one person sick from a viral infection. You add one child to the family, that number when someone has a family has an infection increases to about 18 weeks out of the year. So wow. It's a huge jump. And as you add more children, you get more weeks added to the equation. So, yeah, that is probably not surprising because we, you know, it kind of makes logical sense, yeah? Yeah. At, at what point does it reach the maximum number of weeks in a year? How many children does it take <laughs> to get to 52 weeks? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think it just, yeah, obviously you've got to saturate it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, then, it, and then it just large goes... Families. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of viral infections. Obviously, the young children, children under the age of five, had the most infections, but the number of infections jumped for the adults as well. But the interesting thing here is what they did is they also said they took these PCR tests for actual um, viruses, and what they found was that a positive PCR test didn't always mean that the person was sick. That there wasn't a direct correlation, that they were definitely going to have symptoms if they had um, a virus present. In children, in fact, looking at rhinoviruses in particular, which is the most common one, obviously, because rhinovirus, rhino for nose, rhinovirus is kind of the, com- the most common common cold virus, 44% of the children's infections did not have a symptom. So children were getting these viruses, and 44% of the time they did not have cold symptoms. Um, in adults, the number was higher. 67% of the infections did not have any identifiable symptoms, any detectable symptoms. So this kind of answers that question that, yes, the adults are getting viruses from their children. They're getting more viruses from the children, but they aren't getting sick as often. So, yeah, it does. It does. It's kind of in between. So they're getting the more viruses because there are more viruses present. Um, they are getting sick more, but they're not getting sick as often as the children are. So, look, that is kind of partial answer. But then... There has been more kind of studies as well with some kind of interesting things to find out what is actually going on here. Um, There was a curious study published in 2012 where they actually exposed people to viruses to see what happens. And they found in this particular study that parents got sick less than people who weren't parents. Um, But what was weird was that this was not did not seem to be related to the antibodies that they had from previous immunity, from previous um, infections. And so this paper, they kind of concluded that it might be some sort of psychosomatic thing that um, parents may be just more resilient. And... <laughs> I was going to say, are you suggesting that parents are just tougher than every non-parent? That's what, look, this is science, Claire. That's what that, that said. I mean, I mean personally... How, I how big was this study? Look, I don't, look, personally, I don't really feel this because um, the other side of the equation is, as we are experiencing, as I alluded to earlier, lack of sleep does kind of make you feel a bit more tired and run down. And so, I mean, I'm feeling that we just can't just shake our, our cold. So I don't, I'm not feeling stronger and more resilient at all, I've <laughs> got to say. Yeah, there you go. There is some sort of, I guess, a scientific answer. But essentially, you have more you have more viruses going around. You have more kids getting sick. The parents are going to get sick more often, maybe just not as often as the children are and as badly. And that's 
all we have time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or just tune in again next week wherever you find us when we get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.